Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This is our custom on opening day of the legislature. We are at the state capitol in Salt Lake City. We are in the uh, Treasurer's Conference Room. Later on, we'll be talking with Senate Majority Leader Ralph Okerlund, with Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis. We'll be joined by House Minority Leader uh, Brian King and by uh, incoming House Speaker Gregory Hughes. And we begin with Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Todd. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate you and welcome you back to uh, to Access Utah. Uh, so let's begin with the uh, budget. Let's, uh, the, the governor proposes a budget. The legislature looks at that with a with hard eye. What what are some of the highlights? Well, I, I hope they look at it with a hard eye. That's that's the joke. As a former legislator, we always wondered uh, if anybody read the governor's budget, and uh, I, I'm pleased to say that that many of them do. And uh, it, it we we feel like we have a real opportunity uh, this year, specifically when it comes to education. That's been a priority for the governor for the past five years. The governor has said, "Look, if we focus on the economy, if we focus on bringing business here, if we focus on growing our economy, we will have opportunities, and we will have the money to take care of." Of, of the things that we need to, specifically education. It's no secret that we are the, uh, the lowest funded state per pupil in the, in the country. I, I like to say if there, were, if there were 60 states, we'd be 60th. And so this is a, a big area of concern for the governor. It's not all about the money, but it's, it's some about the money, as, as he says. And uh, with, the, uh, with the economy doing as well as it is right now, we have an opportunity to really make a difference in, uh, in education. The governor has proposed the uh, the largest uh, funding, uh, WPU, the Weighted Pupil Unit, which is how we, we fund public education, uh, in 25 years, uh, 6.25%. Uh, 6 that's, a, that's a very big increase. And, and really, he's looking at a paradigm shift as well. It's not just giving them the money. It's increasing uh, transparency and holding, holding schools accountable for that money, but, but also then uh, letting them make the decisions at the local level. We believe that the government is best closest to the people. We believe that, that locally in the districts and with local school boards, they know where the money needs to be spent. So historically, we have said, here's $5 million for this, and here's $10 million for this. The, the governor's idea here is, let's give you the money. You decide where it needs to be used and what will be best for the children in your district. Uh, so what are projections looking like? The, we, we're told the economy continues to improve, therefore tax projections should continue to improve, but the number of children continues to increase. That's, that's correct. We, uh, one of the things we're really good at in Utah is having children, and uh, we have a lot of them. There are uh, uh, 8,000 new school kids projected to join uh, our, our school system next year, and uh, with that, again, comes a, a very big obligation. That's, a, that's a, $50 million just in new growth. Uh, so that's 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 a big number, but the good news is that the economy is doing well. Uh, we have we have over three hundred million dollars in surplus funds, one-time money. That means that we underestimated last time around, and we have those funds available. We're also projecting an increase of of over three hundred million dollars going forward. And so we, now we recognize that there will continue to be ups and downs in the economy. There, just as we're recovering from the last recession, there will inevitably be another downturn, and so we're very cautious with that. And it's important to the governor that we continue to put money into the rainy day funds. Uh, I think your listeners would be happy to know that uh, the rainy day funds now exceed where they were before the 2008 recession. So we're, we're doing very well and continuing to grow. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about uh, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the, uh, the original version of that, the, the, the states were 
um, going to automatically, uh, you know, ex expand uh, Medicaid than the Supreme Court ruled. And so some case, case states have opted in, some have not. There's a debate, of course, in Utah, as you well know, and the, some 90,000 people are under that uh, gap. Apparently, you've been assigned by the governor to uh, reason with, talk with the, the House uh, to try to, try to get the, the governor's plan passed. That's correct. Uh, we've been having several conversations with the uh, with members of the House of Representatives, uh, particularly uh, Representative Jim Dunnigan, who is now the House Majority Leader, who has been working on this for, for a couple years. He was with us in D.C. during some of the negotiations with the Obama administration. It's, it's a really delicate and difficult uh, issue. Uh, again, uh, the governor is, is not a fan of the Affordable Care Act. Um, he's working with our congressional, congressional delegation to find ways to improve it, to change it, uh, to replace it, uh, all of those things. And yet the hand we've been dealt is while, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court did indeed rule that, uh, that the states had the option of whether to expand Medicaid for those between zero and, uh, and 138 percent of poverty. It's important to note that right now, from 100 percent of poverty and above, uh, there are subsidies available for, for people from 100 percent to 400 percent on a sliding scale. But that gap, those 90,000 people that you talked about uh, between zero and 100 percent who do not have coverage right now. Uh, that's, that's the question. What do we do? If the purpose of the Affordable Care Act was to provide coverage for those that could least afford it, what we ended up with was coverage for those above 100% and no coverage for those who, who need it the, the most. And uh, while, the, uh, while the decision to expand was optional, the, uh, the taxes associated with the Affordable Care Act were not optional, which means that for the, the past couple years and, and uh, moving forward, Utahns are, are sending hundreds of millions of dollars in new tax dollars, new tax dollars specifically associated with the Affordable Care Act for the purpose of expanding Medicaid are being sent back to Washington, D.C. And the only way we get those back is if we are able to expand in some form or fashion. Uh, we have been, uh, the governor's team has been negotiating with the administration over the past year, uh, trying to come up with a, a more conservative plan where, where we would use private insurance as opposed to Medicaid, where uh, we would encourage people to, uh, to have some, uh, some, some responsibility for their health care. Uh, we've been working on, on encouraging people to, uh, to seek employment. Uh, we've been working with people to, to have some, some co-pays, even if they're small co-pays, so they understand that, that there is a cost to this. And then, uh, and then looking for ways to drive down those costs. Uh, healthcare continues to be, become more and more expensive for all of us. Uh, the governor's feeling is that we, uh, uh, again, we're, we're paying for it twice. Um, too often, people who do not have healthcare coverage end up in the emergency rooms for non-emergency care. It's, it's, uh, it's incredibly inefficient way to provide healthcare. It's the worst. It's the most expensive. And yet uh, emergency rooms are required to provide that care. And then all of us pay for it again in, uh, in higher premiums with our insurance carriers, um, higher, higher fees when we go to the hospital, higher fees with our doctors for that uh, what's called uncompensated care. And so instead of paying for it twice, the governor believes we need to get that back. We are working with the House of Representatives. We're working closely. We've had several discussions. Uh, just this past week, I met with, uh, with 10 members of the, uh, the House of Representatives. We spent uh, about two and a half hours kind of hashing through some of the details, uh, looking for, for 
potentially areas where we can come together uh, and and make a difference for Utah. We're also working with the Senate. There's no question. Um, the House has been the uh, the the squeakier wheel uh, right now, and so we're spending a lot of time there. But there's a lot of discussions, and I'm I'm very interested to see how this moves along during the session. So you've made a good case uh, for uh, you know the governor's position that this uh, we're sending money back to Washington anyway. We ought to be pulling that back and using that to, to help cover these uh, 90,000 or so people. What's, what's, the, what's the case of heartburn? What's the, what are the problems you're hearing from especially the House of Representatives? Yeah, there, there's the, a couple. The, the, they're opposed to this. Sure, sure. There, there's a couple issues. One is that uh, while, while this is the money that we're sp- sending back, um, there is a match piece of that, 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 that is the responsibility of the state. Right now, it's 100% uh, federal dollars that would pay for that expansion. However, uh, that next year, that begins to decrease um, until uh, by, by 2020, it's a 90-10 match. So the state would be responsible for 10% of that. Um, by 2020, uh, we estimate that the state's portion of that would be about uh, about $72 million. And so that's that's one of the questions is how will we pay for that? How can we make that sustainable? We are working on solutions to be able to pay for that and uh, look forward to announcing some of that um, over the next couple weeks. Uh, so that's that's one of their concerns. Their other concern is, again, one that, that we share and I think all of us share, and that is the sustainability, not just from the state side, but from the federal government as, as well. Uh, the federal government continues to expand. Um, we, we know that uh, they're spending more than, than they take in. Uh, we feel that that's uh, unsustainable. And so the question is, uh, what happens down the road? What happens if they can't pay their 90%? Does that fall back on the state? And, and are we prepared for that? And so what are the solutions where we can, we can cover people without opening ourselves up to that risk? Those are the arguments that I'm hearing. They're not arguments that we disagree with, by the way. Uh, we just, uh, it, it's just a matter of degree and how we, uh, how we decide to move forward into the future. Is there room for compromise? Could, could, is the governor willing to, if, uh, if you reach an agreement with the House of Representatives, go back to the feds and renegotiate? a slightly different form of, of this Medicaid expansion. Yeah, the, the governor is absolutely open to new new ideas and new concepts, new ways that we can do this. Uh, we feel like we've negotiated as, as much as we can uh, with the administration. They've drawn some pretty clear lines in the sand uh, with us. But uh, again, that, that changes over time. Uh, we know that we'll, we'll have a new administration, uh, whether that's a Republican or, or a Democratic administration, we don't know. But we do know that there will be changes there. Uh, there are always opportunities to continue to, to negotiate. In fact, uh, just two weeks ago, the governor was back personally meeting with President Obama and uh, started talking about one of those lines that had been drawn with the, uh, with the work requirement. Uh, they've, they've allowed us to make that a work effort where we can sign everyone up for all of the, uh, the tools that are available through the Department of Workforce Services, Services but we can't, uh, we can't require that they be seeking a job um, as a condition of getting the uh, the insurance coverage. Uh, he talked with President Obama directly about that, and the president said, you know what, I, I want to talk further about this. And so he personally reopened those negotiations. So uh, nothing is is ever set in stone. I think we'll continue to have those negotiations on both sides, and, and the governor is absolutely open to, uh, to new and better ideas. Mm. If you just joined us, we are at the state capitol on the uh, opening day of the 2015 Utah legislature. Uh, which runs the constitutionally mandated uh, 45 days, I believe it is. There's some talk, Lieutenant Governor, 
uh, Cox of, of maybe expanding that. I don't know if that, that, that would require a constitutional amendment. It, it would indeed, and, and uh, I can state unequivocally I, that, that I would be opposed uh, to that. I, I have the opportunity of, of uh, spending a lot of time around the country with other, other lieutenant governors, other legislators, looking at the way other states do it. Some states have systems similar to ours. Others, others have different systems. And uh, what I found is it doesn't matter how long you, you make it. Uh, people wait until the last minute to pass their bills. Um, it, it, uh, I think we're, we're very lucky to to have a 45-day session. Uh, as a former legislator, I, I can tell you that uh, it's, it's a blessing to the state when the, uh, when the session is over. We do a lot of very good things. Uh, there are always unintended consequences. I think there are some things that we can do to improve uh, the, what, what happens during the session, to improve the feedback that we get, uh, to improve the time that we have to focus on bills, uh, to, to change the process a little bit. I'm excited about many of those ideas. Uh, uh, but I can tell you that lengthening the session is not one that I'm excited about. <laughs> so the, the soundbite is uh, it's a blessing when the, when the session's over. It, it, I, I think uh, <laughs> even legislators would agree with okay. that. Now, uh, I, I saw a national comedy host, I can't, can't remember which one, who said that, you know, the 45 days, that's not a session. That's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a summer vacation. That's, <laughs> that's, you know, Utah is a little on the short side when you, when you look at, you know, you know, across the nation. Uh, but but you're saying you can do what we need done in those 45 days. Yeah, in fact, uh, sometimes I think we get too much done in, in those 45 days. You know, we, we pass uh, close to 500 bills every year. Uh, there are many states that have longer sessions that pass fewer bills than that. And that's not to say that they're not important bills or, or, or shouldn't be passed. But uh, I, I think, again, I think there are some things that we can do that are better than that. We, we have the, the, the opportunity, and we, we do this often, we have special sessions for a reason. If something comes up during that time that is so important that it can't wait until next year, then we have an opportunity to deal with that. Um, but, but again, I think, uh, I think uh, most, uh, most legislators would agree with me, and I, I know the general public would agree with me that we're, uh, we're, we're better off the less the government does. Hmm. You just joined us. We're talking with uh, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking with uh, Senate Majority Leader Ralph Okerlund, House Minority Leader Brian King, House Speaker Gregory Hughes, and uh, Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis. And uh, the topics include um, the budget, of course, education, talk higher education, uh, should the gas tax uh, be increased. Uh, we'll talk about air quality as well. And uh, anything else that you'd like to talk about, you can uh, direct the conversation here with your question or comment to, to Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio, and you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're live from the uh, state capitol on Access Utah today. I want to talk about air quality, uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox. Uh, this is something that's an ongoing concern. Gratefully, this year, as we've been spared uh, you know, a bit of the inversions, but we still have had them. Um, there was a recent day that I traveled from Logan to Brigham City, got out under the gunk, from under the gunk, to the beautiful sunshine, and then went back. Uh, just an illustration, again, that, that we do have an ongoing problem. What... Um, What's the top of the list for the for the governor in terms of uh, solving this? I think people are frustrated. 
Yeah, I, 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 people are frustrated, and, and I think we're all frustrated as well. You know, we, we would love to be able to change our geography, but we can't do that. And so what we need to change is we, we need to change our habits. We need to change uh, many, many of the things that we're doing. Uh, the governor has several propo- proposals uh, that he is, he is working on. One of those is, is a proposal in the budget to convert um, our buses in, in the state to uh, cleaner-burning natural fuels. Um, we're, we're looking at, at some experiments that are happening at our, our uh uh, universities here in the state with with electric buses, some great things that are happening there, and uh, encourage people to use uh, to use more transit. That's that's part of it. It's, again, it's very important. We all have a, a role to play. So much of what we do, so much of the air quality issues come from our tailpipes. Uh, the governor has has met personally with all of the refineries in the area, working on uh, uh, on on moving up the time frame for tier three gasoline, which we've seen has a huge impact on air quality in in the state uh there there is a national initiative to do that unfortunately the way the initiative works uh these these refineries are are able to average their tier three gasoline across all of their facilities and because the utah facilities are smaller uh, that incentivizes them to upgrade facilities elsewhere where it won't have the impact that it has in you know texas and other places that don't have the geography we have and so the governor is is working very closely with them to find ways to uh, to help make that that transition sooner rather than later, and uh, and to help uh, clean up the air. I, I think it's really uh, fortunate that we do have the legislative session during kind of the worst inversion time in the state. Mm-hmm. It gets all the legislators up here. Everyone gets to see what we're talking about, and uh, I think provides some incentive. We've seen more movement on this uh, just the last two years, I think, in the legislature than may, maybe all the years combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, it was it was interesting. We went back and, and did some research and found uh, newspaper articles from the late 1800s um, and if you if you read them without knowing the, the time frame you would thought they were published last week in the in the Tribune or, or Deseret News uh, very similar this is something that's been uh, discussed for a long time the good news is with technological advances we're finally uh, we finally have the ability to make a dent and uh, we're, we're getting there is there a split do you think uh- counties that have a bad air quality pro- uh, problem and uh, those who don't for example if you talk to your former constituents in uh, in San Pete County would this would this be a top topic Sure. I continue to live in Sampy County, and uh, and so we, we have this discussion all the time, and I can tell you that it is not a topic. It's not in the top 100. It doesn't crack the scale because we, we never have uh, an inversion day. They, they just don't exist in, in many of our counties. And so uh, it is a nice place to uh, to go home to uh, when the uh, when the uh, uh, the air is bad here. Get up above the inversion. Like you said, when you were driving to Logan, you get a chance to get above it and, and, and see what's happening. So it's not an issue in all of the state, but certainly where the majority of the population lives, it is an issue, and uh, that's that's why it's getting more and more attention. We'll talk about this as we go along in the program. Uh, we just have uh, another couple of minutes left with uh, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. I want to talk about a, potentially, uh, a potential increase in the gas tax. Something's being talked about with uh, uh, the uh, uh, steadily decreasing gas prices. That's good news. It is. So does that that give us an opportunity to increase the gas tax? Well, it's it's interesting. There's been a lot of discussion about this. Again, uh, I, it, it's been about, I, th- I think, 15 years, actually more, uh, closer to 
closer to 20 years since we've had a gas tax increase. And, and obviously, the, the cost of, of repairing our roads uh, has, has increased over time, and the gas tax has, has not kept up with that. And so there's a lot of discussion in the legislature about what will be done. There are different ideas. Uh, do, we, do we index it so it increases over time? Uh, do we make it a percentage? Uh, a lot of people in the state think it is a percentage of the price of gas, and they're surprised that that's not the case. They think when gas is $4, the state is taking in more money. It's actually the opposite uh, because fewer people are buying gas at $4. Right now, when it's a you know $1.80, uh, more and more people are buying gas. So we're actually now seeing an uptick in revenues from the gas tax that we haven't seen before. And really what we're doing is, is broadcasting out over the next 20, 30 years, what does that look like? And uh, there's no question that we have a severe shortfall, that there's no way the gas tax will be able to keep up with that. And, and part of that is uh, not just that people are driving less, but the cars are much more efficient. With the introduction of clean natural gas, uh, cars as well as electric cars and uh, cars that just get better mileage. We're seeing more wear and tear on the roads and uh, and a smaller gas tax. So we're, we're very interested to see, again, there are, there are kind of conflicting proposals right now. We'll see where those shake out and, and uh, it should be an interesting debate. We've been talking with Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. Uh, coming up, we'll talk with legislative leaders and we hope to hear from you as well. You can uh, join us with your question or comment uh, via Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, and you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox, thanks so much. Thank you, and encourage your listeners to pray for us for the next 45 days. All right. <laughs> uh, coming up, we're with the opening day of the legislature. We'll take a break and come back with more of our preview from the state capitol following this. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And as is our tradition, we are at the state capitol for the opening day of the 2015 Utah legislature. So beginning today, continuing for 45 days, legislators are meeting and will be making our laws. And uh, so we want to uh, get a preview of that to talk with legislative leaders. Our thanks to Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox for spending time with us. 
Uh, coming up in the last segment, we'll be talking with Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis and with House Speaker Gregory Hughes. Right now, we bring in Senate uh, Majority Leader Ralph Okerlund. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you again. I appreciate you uh, joining us. And uh, House Minority Leader Brian King joins us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you uh, being with us. I'll just start with a uh, general overview, uh, Senator Okerlund. Your perspective, what are the top, say, three issues? Uh, you know, this, this session is going to be a heavy session. Uh, we've got some really interesting issues that have kind of come to the front this year that have been kind of percolating for a while. Medicaid uh, probably is obviously number one. It's something that we're going to need to resolve uh, where we're going to go from here. Uh, the gas tax uh, discussion, transportation is uh, certainly another one that we've been talking about for a while. And just funding issues in general. Uh, the budget is always the, the big uh, item that we have to deal with and, and the one that we spend the most time on. And that includes uh, everything from education to all the other programs that the state uh, is involved in. But a sleeper out there that I think that we have to start working on is water. Uh, with the growth that we're going to have, uh, we know we're going to have in this state, we've got to be able to find a way to provide water for all of those folks that are going to be here. And so I think that's kind of a sleeper issue that we need to start really working on this session. Well, let's jump in right there. We can uh, talk about some of the other issues as, as well. Water, what's, wh wh how, would, how would you frame that? Well, we, the, we've got uh, water is already adjudicated, and they're, they're not making any more of it. We, we know kind of uh, what's out there and, and who owns what, uh, who claims what, and who uses what. Uh, we have a large appropriation in the Bear River uh, that, that actually the water is generated in uh, Idaho and Wyoming. They have an apportionment of that water. It comes down in through Bear Lake, and then Utah has an apportionment of that water. The growth that's going to take place in the Wasatch Front uh, is going to have to be uh, accommodated by that Bear River allocation. And to be able to use that water, we'd be able, we've got to be able to find a way to get it down to Salt Lake, to the West Jordan uh, uh, water district, the, the folks that need to use it. So it's going to take a lot of big pipelines. It's probably going to take some storage, some reservoirs, so that we can uh, control the flow and have enough for when we need it. And uh, if we're able to do that, if we do it smart and, uh, and we get uh, working on it right now, we should be able to take care of the growth we're going to have. But the issue that really comes up out there is we've got some systems that are probably going to fail in 10 to 12 years in Cash and Box Elder County they won't have enough water for the people that they're going to have if we don't uh, make sure that we take care of that allotment now and use it. And then you've got the Lake Powell Pipeline. We know we're going to have that growth in, uh, in Washington County. Actually, about 60% of the developable water that we need to work on is in Wasatch Front. That's where most of the growth is going to be. So uh, we need to find a funding source to be able to help those districts be able to pay for their systems. I believe that they are willing and we, we should make them pay for their way. Uh, repay loans, but uh, we've got to find a way to be able to help them do that. So, uh, Representative King, uh, I want to get to water, but uh, first I want to give you a chance to, uh, what are the top three issues? Thank you. Certainly. That, uh, uh, you see. I think that Senator Oakland is right in saying that Medicaid expansion is our biggest issue that we're, we're dealing with this session. It's a critical issue. Uh, we're talking about the opportunity, and it is an opportunity and an investment, that we have to bring back hundreds of millions of dollars to the state of Utah that Utah citizens have already paid to the federal government. This is money that is available for us to take back and it's to be used to provide access to affordable health care for Utahns that don't currently have that. Uh, we're running into some resistance to that idea, particularly in the House this year. 
Uh, we think that full Medicaid expansion, as proposed under the Affordable Care Act by President Obama, is the way to go. It, it's, we've studied this. We've had the PCG Consulting Group out of Boston and two uh, BYU economists come back to us and say, the biggest economic impact you can have, the biggest positive impact you can have in terms of providing affordable uh, health care to individuals is by doing full Medicaid expansion. I don't think that there's the political will to get that done, unfortunately, in our legislature. The, the second best option is Healthy Utah that Governor Herbert has worked very hard on the last few months with federal officials to put together and, and present something that allows us to draw down the maximum dollars for Medicaid expansion. And uh, the governor has asked us at the legislature to consider that. The Health Reform Task Force last month made two recommendations, neither of which were Healthy Utah, both of which were far uh, uh, inferior in my mind in terms of the quality of uh, the product and the amount of money that was brought that would be brought back to the state of Utah and money that we've already paid to the federal government. So I think this is very important both to uh, expand access to affordable health care for people who don't have it right now, but another thing that's critical about it is that this is an economic development issue. This is a budgetary, a fiscal responsibility issue. For us to walk away from hundreds of thousands of, or rather hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funds that are available to us really is completely fiscally irresponsible, I think. Hmm. Senator Okerlund, uh, if you look at the Senate, and particularly Senate Republicans, uh, is there probability, possibility, that the, that the Senate passes uh, at least uh, form close to what the governor has negotiated with the federal government on Medicaid expansion? Um, sure, I think there's a chance. Uh, I, I think uh, right now our caucus is a little bit scattered, uh, and it's going to take some uh, work uh, in looking at all of the options that are out there. We have asked staff to go back and do a, a really good look at what the numbers are so that we know uh, how much money we're going to spend uh, in a few years down the road when the federal government stops paying 100% of the expansion costs and the state ends up picking up uh, more of the costs of, uh, of the Medicaid expansion program. So we're, we're trying to work our way through uh, looking ahead in the budget to make sure that we can be able to afford uh, to do what it is that we can do. What's the best option to be able to do that? Uh, certainly the Healthy Utah plan is something that we're looking very closely at, and, uh, and I think there's a chance that we can get something somewhere close to that. Uh, uh, in the Senate, but uh, but there right now uh, we're we're just not there yet. It's going to take some work. So a uh, lot of discussion. I think it's it's going to be a great debate. And the question is, uh, how many people can we uh, afford uh, to take care of long term? If we know that sometime down the road, if we think that sometime down the road those federal dollars aren't going to be there, we know that 10 percent of them aren't going to be there. And so we've got to be able to find a way to find the money uh, to take care of those problems. And, and of course, the people are, uh, and their health issues are very important to us. I think uh, both houses I, I agree right now that uh, the medically frail, uh, at least, uh, uh, is uh, an, uh, one of the options that we need to look at. Representative King, uh, I wonder how you answered that argument. It seems to be the, the, the main argument from your colleagues, Republican colleagues in the House is that it's all well and good uh, right now, but as Senator Okerlund made reference to, down the line, the state picks up more and more right. of the tab, and can we afford it long term? What's, what's your argument? Well, it's, it's a valid concern, but the reality is that right now when we are dealing with individuals who 
uh, are being treated when they go into a situation where they are in acute need of medical services, how are they treated? They show up at the emergency room, and most of the time, if those individuals don't have any insurance coverage or any uh, eligibility for Medicaid, it's uncompensated treatment. Now, that, the cost of that treatment is not just, it doesn't evaporate into thin air. The cost of that treatment is passed on to all of us. So there is a cost, a state cost, to associated with Medicaid expansion. Uh, for the first, uh, the governor estimates, but for the, for the first five years, it's about $120 million. But in expending $120 million in the first five years, we bring back to the state of Utah $2.1 billion, B, billion with a B, that's a return on federal money that we've already paid. So it's a good investment. And the, the idea that, well, we don't have $120 million to spend is, is wrongheaded for this reason. We are spending the money if these people don't have coverage. We're spending it in the form, each one of us as consumers, in the form of higher health insurance premiums, higher costs for our medical procedures. Those doctors and hospitals, thank goodness, have to be paid. They, they, they're very valuable. We have the greatest healthcare system in the world in terms of innovation and in terms of high quality care, but it's not at all evenly distributed. If we make it more evenly distributed, the effect is going to be actually to reduce costs of healthcare. And I think in the end, this pays for itself. Hmm. Let me ask you about uh, the subject that, that uh, Senator Okerlund says is a sleeper, uh, water. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you agree? It's going to get some water issues here, and then, then I'll ask you to follow you, up. You bet. Well, uh, we live in a desert. Water is, uh, is a very important issue, especially uh, for folks in rural Utah and, and folks in, you know, we living in, along the Wasatch Front, I think, and we don't have the agricultural and other needs for the water that folks in rural Utah do. Uh, sometimes aren't as sensitive to it, I think. But here's the reality. When you look at the pricing structure for water in the state of Utah compared to other states, other states, we're a very flat economic, uh, a flat pricing structure. In other words, there's not much increase in the cost of water if you use more water. And other states around us who are also in the desert, I'm thinking of Nevada, Arizona, Los Angeles, areas that have uh, pressure for their water use in the same way that we do, have structured the pricing for their water in a way that conserves is much more likely to conserve use. If people are profligate with their water use, if they uh, are not careful about conserving, they pay for it. That needs to happen here. It's just basic, straightforward market principles. We need to put that in place in Utah in terms of how we price our water. And only then will we know accurately what the demand for the water is. We, we do need to project, as many have said and as Senator Oakland says, we need to project intelligently and accurately what our future water use is going to be. We can't do that effectively unless we have water priced in a way that uh, provides incentives for conservation. Senator Oakland, did, do you agree with, uh, with a restructuring of uh, water pricing? Yeah, I, in some cases we may need to restructure. Actually, in a lot of cases we already are. When uh, an applicant comes to the Board of Water Resources for a loan now to do a water system, there actually is an incentive in place for conservation. Uh, it, it, uh, the price goes up for, for more gallons of usage, and, and it works both for uh, commercial uh, use and residential use. And so we're already doing that. I think that's something that's going to be part of uh, any plan that we go forward with. We know that we need to conserve. Conservation is very important. I certainly agree with Representative King on that. But it's not going to get us where we need to be if we have 5 million people here in a couple of decades. 
we are simply going to have to develop some more water to be able to meet our needs on the Wasatch Front and in some of those high growth areas. And so even with conservation, with the governor's plan of 25% conservation by 2025, which we are on track to get to, by the way, uh, with the policies that we have in place now, uh, we're, we're going to do better than that. We have to do better than that, and, and we still have to develop our water that's been allocated to us to be able to meet those needs that we're going to have out there with the people coming in. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an important part of what we're going to need to do, and, and it makes sense. And, and we, I think uh, being in an arid state, uh, nobody understands that any better than we do, and, uh, and I think it's been something that we've been working on for a while and will continue to. You talked about uh, water. Um, essentially shipping water from water-rich, comparatively northern Utah, to, to the higher population areas and along the Wasatch Front. Um, I, I don't know, I always come to these issues with the perspective of having grown up in the Uinta Basin, the Central Utah Project, and from, yeah. from our perspective in the Uinta Basin, they were shipping our water, quote-unquote. <laughs> That's always in the definition. Yeah. Yeah. How, do you, how do you proceed without this turning into a pretty ugly fight? Um, you know, the water has already been allocated. And so uh, the, the, the folks who have the right to use the water are uh, those folks that are on the Wasatch Front, the, the big uh, water uh, conservation districts and water use uh, companies have the rights to the water. Uh, that's been allocated. Like the Central Utah Project, uh, water always uh, originates, most of it, in the high elevations, and the Uintas is a very good example, and uh, flows downstream. Any water that the users on the upper end can't use or don't use flows on down to someone else, and they use it, and they end up with a right, they file on it, and that's what's happened with a lot of the water rights uh, statewide. The water originates in the high country, runs downhill uh, to, to the, the folks who use it downstream. So if we're not using our Colorado River allocation or our Bear River allocation, it's going to flow down somebody else. And, uh, and so the, the water is there. The rights are determined. And uh, that part of it I don't suspect there's going to be a real big fight over. Uh, the real question is how can we best develop it for the, for the most people uh, for the best use, using conservation, knowing that we have to conserve, but also that we have to develop these sources uh, to be able to meet our needs that, are, that we're going to have out there. It would be really irresponsible of us to wait 10 years until we have water systems failing before we start to, f to find a mechanism to be able to serve those people that we know we're going to have to serve. So just from a good management standpoint, we've got to start figuring out how we're going to provide that water to those folks that are going to need it. Just a couple of minutes left uh, with uh, Senate Majority Leader Ralph Okerlund and House Minority Leader uh, Brian King. I wonder, uh, from the perspective of uh, House Democrats, the caucus that you lead, Representative King, um, we should have more money, especially as compared to very austere times just back a couple of years. Where should, where should that new money go? What, what are the greatest needs? Well, that's the issue that I think we're all really focused on here in the legislature coming up. We're very fortunate to be in a time where we have uh, good budget numbers relative to years in the past. And I think that we have to undertake a very uh, hard-headed uh, uh, analysis of what the greatest needs in the state are right now. There are needs in transportation. Senator Okerlund's talk about needs and talked about needs in water. We think as Democrats that of those uh, things compared to those things 
public education is the most pressing need. We uh, have talked for years about the fact that we spend less in Utah per pupil than any other state. That's been true for many years. The thing that concerns us is we're seeing a steady decrease in our performance and test scores. Uh, we've seen that over the long term, 20, 30 years. We can't afford to continue to do that. And it is not just a quality of life issue, and it's not just an issue that we owe to our kids, although it's both of those in a very real sense. It's an economic development issue, and it's not a coincidence that you see the Chamber of Commerce and other business leaders in the state of Utah saying to us, you guys up at the legislature, you men and women need to start to allocate and, and appropriate more money and more resources for public education and higher education, too. They're both critical. Public education is a crying need in our mind at this point, and uh, so along with a better infrastructure for water development and for transportation, we need to improve significantly the infrastructure of funding public and higher education in the state of Utah in this session. And we'll give Senator Okerlund the last word. Do you agree to public education, top budget priority, or if not, what, what is? Public education is always the top priority in, uh, in the state. It's, uh, we, we have the largest families in the country, in the state of Utah. We know that we're gonna have uh, more needs for public education, and, and it is so important uh, uh, from every level. Uh, Representative King uh, is absolutely right. Uh, if, we're, if we don't have a, a great education system, we're not going to have a workforce that's well-educated and trained, uh, so we need to make sure that we're doing that. Uh, for the last couple of years, we've been able to increase the WPU, uh, as well as meet the growth needs of public education. I think that we'll be able to do that again. The governor's budget obviously has uh, a large increase there, and some of that uh, will be determined whether or not we spend some of that money or set some of that money aside for Medicaid or some of the other uh, uh, needs that we have out there that, that are before us. But as we see our economy grow, as we see a little bit of surplus money that we can deal with, we know that we're going to have to, uh, the big, the big uh, gorilla in the room, uh, is always public education and always will be, and so uh, it's something that we feel very strongly about, I think, on both sides of the aisle that we need to do a good job there. We'll leave it there, and uh, we will take a break, bring in our last panel, but we thank at this point uh, Senate Majority Leader Ralph Okerlund. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good, uh, good to be with you. And House Majority Leader Brian King, thanks. So thank much. you very much. Coming up following a break, we'll bring in Senate Minority uh, Leader Gene Davis and House Speaker Gregory Hughes. That's following the break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. One of the simplest types of physical activity is walking. It's also one of the most beneficial. Walking benefits the body in many ways. It's known to decrease stress, blood pressure, get people off medications, improve sleep, boost energy, preserve muscle, and improve blood sugar levels. Many state and national campaigns encourage 10,000 steps per day, so walk to work, walk at lunch with a friend, or just have a walking meeting. If you've been inactive for a while, try to walk more steps than the day before. Over the past four years, my pedometer has become my exercise buddy. It's always there for me, rain or shine. Let's start walking and let the results take care of themselves. Less traffic, healthier bodies, and cleaner air. 
This is Addison Pace for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've arrived at the last segment for the program today. This is a traditional program. We, uh, every year at the beginning of the legislative session, we are at the state capitol in Salt Lake City, and that's where we are today. I'm Tom Williams, and we have talked early in the program with Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. We just uh, talked with Senate Majority Leader Ralph Okerlund and House Minority Leader Brian King. And in this panel, uh, we are joined by uh, Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. And we hope to be joined here in the next uh, 10 minutes by House Speaker uh, Greg Hughes. And uh, hopefully he'll be uh, coming through the door. Uh, so, uh, Senator Davis, uh, by the way, let me uh, give out the uh, email. You are welcome to join us here by email. If you have an issue that we have not been talking about or want to take this in a different direction or have a specific uh, question or comment that we have not covered, uh, or even if we have covered it, we'd love to hear from you at upraxis@gmail.com. upraxis@gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. So, uh, Senator Davis, I've been asking everybody. I'll ask you, what are the top three issues in your mind as as we go into the 2015 Utah legislative session? I believe the uh, top issues that are going to hit us, of course, is uh, the funding for education, which is always the top priority, I think, in the state of Utah to see how we're going to balance those dollars with the needs of uh, the young people of this state. Uh, the other is uh, the infrastructure, transportation, and Medicaid expansion. I think those are probably the uh, three top issues that are, that are going to be before us in this upcoming session. Hmm. We have an email from uh, Carla in uh, St. George. Uh, so it's a somewhat lengthy, but I'll try to get the gist here. Uh, to our state legislators, she says, as the legislator has sold the land and is moving the Utah State Prison, another issue has surfaced in conjunction with this issue. I have a son who works there. The Utah Department of Corrections officers are grossly underpaid for the work they do. Specifically, state statute requires the UDC officers are to be paid market value, market comparably, but they are not. No market study for comparable salaries has been done. Poor retention of officers, uh, an improved uh, quote-unquote pay plan implemented in 2008 resulted in many officers, my son included, not benefiting from an increase. And uh, so she, uh, the general gist is she, she would like, uh, sounds like, more money allocated and then improvements with the Department of Corrections. You know, that's one of those areas that we uh, need to look very closely at during this upcoming session. Wages have always been one of those issues that uh, are sticklers. I remember a few years back we had uh, an issue with the highway patrols funding and the fact that they were eligible for all of the safety net programs uh, for the most part. We addressed those wages. We need to do the same thing in corrections and with other uh, public employees to make sure that they're receiving a marketable wage. The prison relocation itself, where, where do we stand? You know, Prada has been uh, studying the issue. That's the uh, Prison Relocation and Development uh, Committee. And uh, I understand that they've come down with about three different locations that they're looking at right now and moving the prison. The uh, property has not been sold yet, uh, and there's a growing movement to leave it where it is, which I think probably will not happen. I think all of the reports from uh, this uh, commission has looked at the land there. They've looked at lands elsewhere, 
They brought in a, a couple of different studies to take a look at it, professionals to take a look at it and, and see what is the best economic development. Was uh, what has been just over uh, uh, 50 years ago that we moved it from Sugar House, the prison, out to Draper, which was in the middle of nowhere. And now if you take a look at where the prison is today, an awful lot of growth going on out there. So we do need to take a look. We need to uh, do a lot of rehabilitation and rebuilding of the prison itself to make it uh, serve the inmates better. Uh, so we, we need to look at those things. Let me talk a little bit about air quality. I know uh, last session uh, you you made a proposal. I think yes. you're maybe going to bring that back. It's already filed. So you, you already filed. So so tell us about this, and then, then we'll talk a little bit more about air quality. Under current law in the state of Utah, we can't adopt uh, any rules or regulations, or the Department of Environmental Quality cannot uh, adopt any rules or regulations that are more stringent than the federal government's. I believe to find a Utah solution, the one thing that we have to do is be able to uh, repeal that law so that we can take a look at other ideas and throw more ideas on the table and figure out a way to help buffer the air, if you will. The inversions are natural uh, along the front, uh, and in many mountainous valleys we do have inversions. And with man being located within those boundaries, of course, there's debris. And uh, in the winter, there's warming yourself and, and burning a fire. And so that needs to be discussed. Ways to lower emissions. And uh, not only from automobiles, but also from business. There's another rally coming up. It's going to march to the state capitol. The title, I think, illustrates the mood of many. Clean air, no excuses. You've outlined some measures. And, and yes. Both parties have outlined, and the governor has a plan. And uh, what's what's going to be the most effective? Do you think? I think the first thing we've got to do is repeal this. I know this uh, idea of having doing away with all wood burning actually flies right in the face of this law, because we're adopting more stringent laws. Uh, the EPA has approved wood burning and wood burning stoves that meet certain levels of, of, of lower emissions. And, and so we've got to look at that. And I, I really believe that uh, the first step is to repeal the current statute so that we can have that open and, and good scientific discussion about what is good clean air. And you say you've already, you've already filed that, so it'll yes. be, you'll be running that again. Yes, we, uh, we missed by one vote getting it out of the Senate last mm -hmm. time. What, what do you think this time around? Well, uh, you know... I refiled it to pass it this okay, time. Right. right. Yeah, I guess that's that. That'd be true. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, Medicaid expansion. Yes. Um, we have heard that the, uh, the sticking point is in the House. Do you, you think it's likely to pass? The, the governor's plan is likely to pass in the Senate? You know, uh, it's going to be a, take a lot of time and a lot of negotiations to get to where we need to be in the state of Utah on this issue. I have pre-filed a full Medicaid expansion bill. And, of course, uh, the governor's bill, I, I don't know exactly where the Healthy Utah bill happens to be in the, in the curb, whether it's going to start in the House or the Senate or where. And the uh, task force itself uh, actually came down with uh, an idea of capping it uh, at 100% of poverty for frail and 
and meeting certain standards. We need to expand health care access to all Utahns. Uh, and it's an economic issue. By 2021, 20, uh, just a few years down the road now, uh, when full expansion takes place and the state has to come up with its 10%, what we will be doing is giving up over $600 million that won't be coming into the state's economy if we don't address Medicaid expansion. So it's really an economics issue as well as access for all people to be able to get quality health care at an affordable price. Mm. What's the uh, top issue? We'll, we'll uh, end with this. That we Hopefully we'll have a bigger pie, right, with the improving yes. economy that the legislature can divide up. What's, uh, what's the thing that's concerning you the most that, that you would like to see there where that money should go? With our growing revenue, we really aren't growing out of the needs of the state of Utah. I mean, education, just with what's growing this year, isn't enough to take us forward to address the issues of technology in the classroom, making sure that teachers know how to teach with that technology. We need to look at that. That needs more money in. I think the president has come up with an idea, uh, the president of the United States has come up with the idea of allowing anyone with a 2.5 aggressive students to have free education in the community colleges. I think those are issues that we have to address in the state of Utah. We have to advance education and educational opportunity to make it affordable for all of our citizens to be able to move forward in the economic realm. So the reinvestment in education is really a reinvestment in infrastructure. And so I, I think, from my point of view, that uh, reinvesting in our infrastructure is the most important thing that we can do, and education being the top of that ladder. Roads, of course, water, which has been spoken of uh, previously. The whole issue in the state of Utah is reinvestment. If we take a look at, uh, we continue to say that we're the best managed state in the nation. The one thing that the economists have shown is the fact that our wages, the earning of the citizens of the state of Utah has not kept up. So we need to make sure that we have wage growth in the state of Utah as well. And we'll be looking at how all of these issues play out in the upcoming session. We've day one today and 45, 44 days to come. And we appreciate all of the Senate and House leaders that have been with us, along with Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. And thank you very much, Senate Minority Leader Gene Davis. Thanks thank for you. In. Thanks for the opportunity. We will catch up with House Speaker Greg Hughes down the line. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. My backyard bird feeders are a busy place this time of year. I enjoy keeping track of who visits. Last winter, however, I was baffled by the identity of what turned out to be a fairly ordinary bird. Dark-eyed juncos are a common sight throughout the United States, but as it turns out, they exhibit an incredible geographic variation in plumage colors. There is a slate-colored race, 
which I was used to seeing in the Midwest, uniformly gray above with a white underbody. During Utah winters, the Oregon race is common, with its black hood, brown back, and peachy sides. Another gray-headed race sports varying shades of gray with a distinct reddish-brown patch on its back. Depending on who you ask, there are up to 15 different races, also called subspecies, of dark-eyed junco, all quite visually distinct, but all considered to be the same species. It wasn't always this way, however. In the late 1950s, what we now call the dark-eyed junco was recognized as four different species, and in the 1890s, there were six. These changes beg the question, at what point does speciation occur? And the answer lies in the ability of these birds to interbreed. One scientific definition of a species is those organisms or population of organisms that are potentially capable of interbreeding. Unique plumage patterns have evolved in a number of geographic locations across the Junco's range. However, all of the dark-eyed Junco variants could potentially interbreed if they happened to meet. Indeed, in places where these geographic territories overlap, interbreeding does take place, resulting in blends of the usually distinct color patterns. Juncos aren't the only bird species with recognized color variants. Any raptor enthusiast will be familiar with variations in plumage colors that many birds of prey exhibit, such as merlins and red-tailed hawks. What makes dark-eyed juncos unique is that they are being studied as a possible case of speciation in progress. It turns out that there is more than just a difference in color among dark-eyed juncos. Some subspecies also exhibit variation in song pattern, social behavior, body size, and migration patterns, any of which may eventually cause these groups to stop interbreeding and allow a new species to emerge. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Pianist Fazel Sai played with the French National Orchestra in Paris this season. We'll hear two highlights, a crowd-pleasing piano concerto by Camille Saint-Saëns and a stunning encore composed and played by Fazel Sai. I'm Fred Child. Join me for concert highlights from Paris on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com.
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and a Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah and Utah Public Radio today, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour by NPR, followed by a performance today.